Welcome to Humane Tech, Episode 1. I'm Jeffrey Kay. What is Humane Tech? Humane Tech is the opposite of what most of us experience on a daily basis with technology. If you call it into a phone system that requires you to say, why are you calling? And you tell it why you're calling. And it says, I don't understand your response. And you say, go to hell. Or something else. Maybe I can't say on a podcast right now. At least not this podcast, which is meant to be humane. Websites that require you to identify fire hydrants or chimneys in dozens of blurry images before it allows you to actually log in. Software that requires you to take training before you can get it to do something reasonable. Apps that require you to work them in ways that are not natural. Phones that lock up and can't seem to get them to turn off or on or really do anything. This is inhumane tech. Humane tech is about making those pieces of bad technology work better for us. It's also about securing and privatizing our lives so that businesses, malicious people, organizations, and criminals don't target us in ways that are workable. We want to protect each other, protect our businesses, protect our employers and our employees, our customers, so that we have jobs, we have safety at home, that our information is not stolen and sold off to the highest or even sometimes the lowest bidder. You are worthwhile. Your information is worthwhile. Let's protect both. Well, welcome, my friends. I had to choose from literally dozens of ideas for this first episode and the primary topic we're going to discuss today is not something that on the surface sounds all that exciting. Multi-factor authentication, or MFA. Some people call it two-factor authentication. But if you're not already using MFA or multi-factor authentication at your bank and all your key services and software, it's the best thing you can do to improve your online security and keep yourself private. So that'll be the bulk of the episode. Before we get there, though, this episode is being released the week of Thanksgiving 2019 in the United States. And because of that, with a lot of us traveling, uh, a lot of people thinking about using the big deals for Black Friday and Cyber Monday purchases, I want to just list off some things, uh, talk about some things in a light way to keep yourself safe. First of all, if you're thinking about buying a smart TV, a smart appliance of some sort, keep in mind that these are devices that are absolutely the opposite of privacy-protecting devices. A lot of the inexpensive TVs that are on the market now, which is almost everything that's on the market for TVs, have cameras, tracking software, uh, microphones, the microphones are there so that you can say, hey, change the channel to 13 or whatever you want to listen to or watch. And that's super convenient. And uh, the cameras are there, uh, at least the way they're being marketed is so that you can do face-to-face -face video conferencing over your phone. I mean, not your phone, but your television. And yeah, so that sounds convenient and wonderful. But a lot of these TVs are watching you. They watch to see if you are sitting in front of the television during a commercial. 
they notice movement, and if they notice that you are not in front of the TV during an advertisement, they send that information to the marketing companies, which is great for the marketing companies. But these companies are creating bigger and bigger profiles on who you are, what you buy, what you like, and this is very intrusive. These televisions are not your friends. If you absolutely need these services for some reason, uh, first of all, email me, let me know why. I'm curious why you need this stuff. But know that this is very invasive and they're tracking you and they're selling this information for a premium to other companies. And that's why a television that might have been three or $400 a couple years ago is 130 or $140 or even less than that. It's crazy, it's crazy. But the reason is because you are subsidizing the price of the television by sharing your information. Same thing is true with uh, smart speakers, except it's not so much the price, it's the privacy. Apple, Google, Amazon have all come out and said, you know, we actually do listen with people. So people are listening to recordings of your Hey Siri, Hey Alexa, all those commands. Those recordings are often being reviewed by humans. And you say, well, wait a minute, I thought this was some sort of AI, some sort of artificial intelligence that was listening to me and doing what I said it, it should do. In a lot of cases, that's true. You say your magic word to Siri or to the Amazon device and it plays your music. Wonderful. But there's some time before your command and some time after your command that is recorded and sent and saved. If need be, these organizations have people who are listening to these recordings and trying to figure out well, you asked to play Katy Perry, but uh, we played Commander Cody instead. We don't know why that is, so we're going to have a person listen and say, oh, when this person says Katy Perry, it sounds like Commander Cody for some reason. We don't, don't get it. On the surface, again, perfectly great. They want to make sure that their product is working properly, but they're listening to the words before and after. They are possibly picking up on private conversations because there are, is background noise and you might have your family over and you're sending your command over to your Apple or Google device and there's also so all that background discussion which is private and now you've got somebody listening to that and companies saving those recordings for later. That doesn't seem right. But again, if it's more important that you have these devices and have these services running than having your life compartmentalized so that your privacy, your personal privacy is personal and private. If you're okay with companies selling your information, well, you probably don't want to listen to this podcast a whole lot more because we're going to be talking about privacy a lot. Regardless, there's always a balance between security, privacy, and usability. Do you have something that you want or need to be able to use. There's no way that everything we want to use is going to give us 100% security and 100% privacy. There's always going to be a trade-off. So we deal with that. You want to use social media, your privacy goes down. Your security may go down a little bit as well. How are you going to deal with that? Educate yourself and make the best decision you can. For instance, if you use 
Instagram. Use multi-factor authentication on your accounts, which we're going to talk about here in just a little bit. That will up your security. Again, paranoia is the other side of this. If we go too far towards we've got to be 100% secure and private, you're going to become paranoid and you may not be able to leave the house anymore, and we don't want that. So again, let's educate ourselves, work together, and do our best. Now, what else can we do this week of Thanksgiving, the beginning of the holidays in the United States, where we've got so much purchasing and traveling? There's been a lot of news recently about something that's called juice jacking. What this is, is if you've been to an airport in the last few years, where there are charging stations, where you can just plug in your phone with a USB cable and charge up your phone while you wait for the airplane. They have these train stations, bus stations, uh, shopping malls, doctor's offices. I've seen them a couple times. These seem very, very convenient. And yes, they are convenient. But here's the problem and what security people are seeing a lot of now. It's very possible when you plug in your device to share information or allow a virus to be installed on your machine. So you take your phone, you take the charger cable off the little block that plugs into the wall and you just plug it in instead of to your computer, you plug it into one of these USB charging devices. Or there's a cable coming out of the charging device, this uh, little kiosk thing, and you take their cable and plug it into your phone. One of the issues is you don't know what's on the other side. Yes, they're giving you power, but they could also be taking your data off the phone, or they could be presenting your phone with a virus, which gets installed, and then that tracks you or steals information. None of this is good. None of this is good. You just can't trust these kiosks unless you've uh, known exactly how they've been handled from the time they've been installed until the time you start using them. And there's just no way to do that. So how do you protect yourself? Well, there's a couple different ways. First of all, um, I like to carry with me a power bank. This is a portable battery that will plug into my, uh, my phone. You can take these on the plane or the train or the bus or in your car. You can take them camping. Super convenient. They're pretty lightweight. They'll, most of them will charge your phone two or three times before you have to charge it again. And they're not all that expensive. If you don't have one of those, that charging block that you use to plug your phone into the wall jack, the electrical jack, that protects your uh, that protects your phone from sending data or receiving a virus. So use that. Plug it into the wall. The problem is there tend to be fewer wall jacks around than these kiosks. So again, it's a convenience thing. Finally. Only use the cable that comes with your phone or you've gotten from a trusted party. There are cables, literally cables, that have been created to hack into your device and install a virus. This is a proven thing. These cables are being sold to people who want to be, be malicious. Uh, also, they're being sold to people who are security professionals and want to prove that this is doable. So uh, just know that this is possible. And while it's unlikely you're going to see this, it's possible. So if you lock your locks on your home door before you go traveling, you're doing that to keep yourself safe and your stuff safe. Do the same thing when you're traveling. Do what you know is smart and you'll be okay.
Most information systems that store our data require us to remember a username and a password. The username is often something created from our name. Uh, I'm Jeffrey K. Maybe it's J-K-A-Y-E or J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-K. Those are easy to remember and they're easy to guess. My email address is easy to guess. Passwords are a pain to remember if they're complex enough or too easy to guess if they're not complex enough. But we'll talk about password management next episode. That's plenty. So what's better than just using a username and difficult to remember passwords? That's what today is all about. Multi-factor authentication, also known as MFA, 2FA, two-step authentication, two-step uh, verification, SMS verification, and many other names. Why so many names? Because it's inhumane. But it's important because MFA makes our lives more secure. They make the systems that supposedly protect us more secure. So let's use MFA. And let's not worry about two-factor authentication and two-step verification and all those other names. We're going to use MFA, multi-factor authentication. If you forget what it means, play this again or look at the show notes. What are some examples of MFA that you've already used? And I'm guessing that if you have an ATM card or a debit card, you use MFA almost on a daily basis. If you go to a grocery store and you put in your debit card, it will require you to hopefully put in a PIN, a personal identification number, four, five, maybe six digits to protect your card. That, my friends, is multi-factor authentication. The card is something that you have. That is one factor of authentication, one kind of thing to protect yourself, to say, this is mine. The PIN is something that you know. So you've got something that you have, the card, and something that you know, the PIN, and the combination creates multi-factor authentication because you are using two factors, which is more than one. The third type of factor is something that you are. So it could be your DNA, your fingerprint, your eye, your face. All of those are types of things that you are, and those can all be used for authentication into different kinds of systems. But the most common types of multi-factor authentication include something that you have and something that you know, but not necessarily something that you are. So you've got the debit card. Same thing works in the ATM machine. You put the ATM card in, that's something that you have, the PIN, which is something that you know, and you can get money out. This is protecting you. So if you lose the card, you still need the PIN in most cases. What about logging into your bank's website? Most of them, I hope, at least all of the ones that I've used, require that you get some sort of code sent to your email address or sent via text message to your phone. This is yet another kind of MFA. It is something that is sent to something that you have. So you've got your username and password that you enter into the website. Then it sends a code to something that you have, which is your phone or your email address. Yes, it's unfortunate to have a second factor sent to the same device that you were trying to access through. So getting an email message with your code is not as secure as getting something to your phone which is probably less likely to be in someone else's hands, whereas anybody can get into a website and possibly your email address from a computer. 
So there are different levels of MFA or quality of MFA. Uh, a text message is better than an email message, and a token, which we'll talk about physical tokens later, is even better than a text message. But having any sort of MFA on systems that you need to log into is much, much, much better, much more secure, better for you and everyone else than not having MFA. MFA sometimes saves people from having identity theft, money loss, data breaches, etc. How is this? Well, again, usernames are typically very easy to steal, passwords pretty easy to steal, and the combination is then pretty easy. So what protects you? If somebody has your username and your password but they don't have your phone, you're still safe if you get SMS messages or text messages with your code. So use MFA. Use it everywhere you can. And where are these places you can use it? Well, increasingly, website owners are making it easier to use two-factor authentication. Oh, geez, I used the wrong term again. MFA. See how easy it is to become part of the system and use the wrong wording? Even when you say, you know, to be more humane, I'm not going to do that. Well, here I am. I am human, and therefore, that's a humane mistake, I suppose. So, where can you use multi-factor authentication or MFA? Ha, oh, got it right this time. Well, hopefully your bank website and anywhere else that has financial information about you, say the Social Security Administration or an investment website. What about TurboTax if you use your online tax system or any of those other online tax systems? If you log into the IRS, they can send you a code. Why then are businesses behind the government? That's kind of unusual, isn't it? Sometimes and sometimes not. Regardless, turn it on, turn it on, turn it on. Go to your utility companies where you pay your bills. Um, if you pay online to your electric company, gas company, your cell phone system, um, your internet, all those, you should be using multi-factor authentication. If you use a password manager, please, please, please don't use a password manager without some sort of multi-factor authentication. Again, we'll get into the depths of that next time, but if you don't have MFA turned on on your password manager, you shouldn't be allowed to use a password manager. If you have one, go turn on MFA right now. Stop what you're doing. Protect yourself. So, where else? If it's available, use it. But also, be aware. If you lose your phone, how are you going to get into that system? The one problem we have with creating better security and more security for ourselves and our businesses and people we care about is what happens if we lose access to those systems. Have you broken your phone, lost your phone, had it stolen? What are you going to do if you can't log into your bank website and your phone's gone? Well, a lot of places have a backup system. You can turn on email, but then that decreases the overall security because usually when you log into your bank, it'll say, do you want a code sent to your phone or your email? Well, gee, I just want it sent to my phone unless I prove that my phone's gone somehow. Huh. Sometimes you can't win. So you do your best. Turn it on the phone, turn on the email. Again, 
better than not having it at all. If you get nothing else out of this podcast, stop here. Use multi-factor authentication everywhere you can. Get a code sent to your phone or your email or both if you need to and secure your life better. But if you really want to do things right, keep listening. Here's the thing. Using multi-factor authentication much better than not. If you have been using a different kind of multi-factor authentication called secret question and secret answer, which often we're forced into, think about this. If you've ever had digital information stored about you at a doctor's office, an online system, social media, etc., that information is likely out there somewhere. You might be able to go to a search engine and type in your name and get that information very easily. Or you might have to do a little bit more work. And I tell you, criminals are doing this every day. It's worth it, and they will do it. So, if you have gone onto Facebook and said, hey, one of my best friends in elementary school was Joe. And then Joe mentions that his elementary school was Portland Elementary School. Well, now it's not so difficult to figure out that you probably went to Portland Elementary School. So, what was the elementary school you went to? Portland Elementary School. Bam, I'm in your bank website. Goody. Not so good. This is horrible. So, you're going to hear me talk about secret questions and secret answers in the password management episode, which will be episode two. But use random answers or use lies, wrong answers. Instead of saying that your elementary school that you attended was Portland Elementary School, say that it was Cheese Rock Hammer 4. Yeah, doesn't make any sense, does it? But if you can remember it, or you store that information somewhere safe that you can get to, then it doesn't matter that it's wrong or that it's hard to get to. I mean, hard to uh, remember. It's hard for anyone else to figure out as well. My mother's maiden name is actually pretty easy to figure out because she was on Facebook for quite some time. She was on MySpace. She was on lots of bulletin board systems, and that information is just out in the wild. My mother died several years ago, and that information exists well past her death. So it's easy to go from me to her to her last name and use that information. And yeah, back in the 80s and 90s, it was the first question that the DMV and other agencies would ask for. What's your mother's maiden name? And you'd put it down and, well, that's your second factor of authentication. That's something that you are or know. I don't know what your mother's maiden name is. I'd have to think about that. Anyway, it's worthless as a piece of security because it's so easy to get. If everyone's got a key to your house, there's no need to lock your house. Everyone can get in, so stop locking your house. Bad advice? Maybe change the locks. All right, so one last piece about multi-factor authentication. It's been proven that the different kinds of multi-factor authentication some are better and some are worse. I've already told you that SMS or text messaging is better than email. That's often because email is easier to break into. Well, here's another thing. 
If you're using a web-based email system, how are you protecting the login to that email system? Are you using multi-factor authentication? Is that code being sent to your email? No, hopefully not, or else you'll never get in again. Is it being sent to a different email address? How are you getting the code to get into that other email address? Because you are using multi-factor authentication, yes? Yes. Oops, more problems. Okay, this is one of the reasons why SMS or text messaging is better than email, because it's not your email address, not your email account. Also, it's something that you have usually physically on you or near you and you know where it is and you protect it because the phone is one of the most important pieces of authentication and tracking in your life. We're going to talk about phones in one of the future episodes. It is a dirty, dirty piece of machinery. Let's clean it up. All right. So this dirty thing you're using for authentication, it's better than email, but what's better than a phone and text messaging? Well, voice over IP. We're going to talk about that another time. This is a uh, virtual phone number or voice over IP or internet protocol. Let's not worry about all that right now, but it's a virtual phone number that you can use on a different system. It's too complex to talk about at the moment, but if you've got a voice over IP system and it can receive text messaging, that's better than it going to your cell phone. Cell phones can be cracked or stolen at least the phone numbers that are on your cell phone can be stolen using something called SIM jacking. This is when somebody calls into your mobile provider and says, Hey, I'm Jeffrey Kay. Here's my address. Here's a whole bunch of information about me that you know. I would like to transfer my phone number to this new phone that I just bought. And then they do it. It's easier than you think. But it usually only happens if you're actually being targeted by a criminal or malicious person. So again, phones are better than email. Phones not so good because of SIM jacking. But what's better than that? Well, a token. You can get an app like Google Authenticator, Duo, Authy. And this is an app that will run on your phone, but it's not tied to your phone number or your phone service provider. So it's separate and can't be as easily stolen or hacked. There are still ways, and we'll get into that later. <laughs> that seems to be the phrase of the day. There's so much to know, but we're getting there. Are you using MFA? Have you turned it onto a website? Have you paused and turned it onto on your bank website? Then we've won, and all this complexity is just extra and better stuff. So where are we? Software tokens. Software token, you open up the app and it has a timed code, a code that's usually about six digits long, and it lasts for 30 seconds. And after 30 seconds, it gives you a new code. So you go to the website, you've got this app associated with the website. You type in your username and your password, you hit enter, and it says, hey, what's the code from your authenticator app? You type in the six digit code, and now you're in. When you set up these apps, you're given backup codes, which you put into a safe place. So if you do lose your phone or the app doesn't work for some reason, you can still get in. One thing that you can do, uh, this is one suggestion, is to put those backup codes on a piece of paper. Put the piece of paper in a sealed envelope. Put the sealed envelope in a secure location, say the bottom of your desk drawer at home or at work where people aren't looking. 
and now it's somewhere safe. Uh, better that it would be in an actual safe or safe deposit box, maybe someone else's home with your safe. Isn't that interesting? Um, these backup codes will let you into your, your websites if you lose your auth app, authentication app. Then there are hardware tokens. These are actual uh, physical devices that you plug into your computer or you can touch to your computer or your phone through what's called near field uh, connectivity or NFC. And these devices, uh, when you push the button, come up with a new code for you. It's like the app, but you don't actually have to type in the number from the app. The token itself, when you push the button, types into the website. So it says, please enter the token. And you press the button and there you go. The problem is these hardware and software tokens are not as uh, commonly used by websites and systems. I use them as much as I can, and yet what I end up with are I've got my hardware token, I've got two different authentication apps, and then I've also got SMS messaging, and because some websites won't allow SMS messaging, I've also got email messaging. So what? why is this a good thing? Is it good to have five different ways to get into websites? I say yes. It is a little bit of a hassle. It is a little inhumane in keeping my humanity. I don't want people to steal my bank account information. I don't want them to get into my wireless provider's website and move my text messaging to a different phone. I don't want my personal information violated, and so I use multi-factor authentication however I can. If you don't go the route of hardware and software tokens, then you will be left with, generally, two different ways of using MFA. Your SMS text messaging and your email. And that may be enough. That may be much better than you're doing today, so do it. If you can, go the extra level and go to software tokens, please do it. If you can go to hardware tokens, also more complex to set up and manage and make sure that you've got backups for. If you can, definitely do it. I will be having classes in January and February of 2020 where I walk you through the process of getting hardware tokens working. This will be invaluable because it is so complicated and frustrating to get them up and running. But once they're set up, they are fabulous. I love not having to get a code on my phone or through email. I can just plug this thing in, push the button, and I'm good to go. So. Use MFA. Use it everywhere you can. Use hardware tokens, then software tokens, then SMS, then email. But if you want to keep things on the humane level, use text messaging and email and call your phone provider and say, how are you protecting me against SIM jacking? I don't want it to happen to me. And if they have a bad answer, consider moving to another provider. Unfortunately, most of the U.S. providers are not good with this. Mine is good, but not great. I don't know how yours stands up, but I'm not hearing great stories from all of them. So do your best, keep things humane, and I'll see you next episode. Thank you.